Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Pew Bible number is page 650. 650. I'm going to read beginning in verse 4, and I'll read to the end of 53. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all, we all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished." After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. I want us to think about one thought tonight. It pleased God to save us. It pleased God to save us. In 2004, Rebecca and I uh, were childless at the time. And uh, so we went down to Manhattan and we were taking in different things. And we made our way down to Ground Zero. It was 04, three years after the 9-11 attack. But it had all been cleaned up, but not yet done anything with. So it was still very quiet. It was very sanctuary-like. Everyone whispered when they were there, and everything was still, still in 2004. And something that struck me was, as we were standing there looking at everything through the fence, at that time, they had not yet taken it down, but there was a cross beam from the, the towers that had collapsed that they had pulled out, and it was in the shape of a cross. And it had been mounted on display on what was the sidewalk right where the trade centers once stood. And I remember standing there and my mouth was open. I was just like, does anybody see this? (laughs) Does anybody know that they put this here? And I found out, right, it was a cross beam that had fallen and been crushed that way. And they pulled it out in the shape of a cross. And somebody pulled it out, cleaned it up, mounted it. And planted it as a symbol of hope and peace at Ground Zero. 
And the reason my mouth was open, besides the obvious, I, I was turning to Re- Rebecca and I said, this is a sign of execution. This is like putting an electric chair on display at ground zero. But it's a sign of the opposite. It's a sign of the opposite of execution, even though that's what it is. Through the cross of Jesus, this execution instrument becomes hope. That's astounding. And that's the same kind of thing that's going on in this verse. In verse 10, it says, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely when you make him a guilt offering. He will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. What a strange verse. It pleased the Lord to crush Jesus. Sign of execution, but brings pleasure to God. How so? That's the question. And that's the answer to that is is the main thought we want to meditate on, that it pleases God to save us. Let's think about this. Yahweh was pleased to crush his servant. If you take notes, that's the first thing you could write down. Yahweh was pleased to crush his servant. The word here is pleased or delight, your translation might have. And it expresses his desire or we might say God's will. God, what is your will? To crush my servant severely. God, what would please you? The answer, to crush my servant severely. And it immediately raises the question as to what does this refer? What is it that pleases God? What is it that that God is taking pleasure in when he crushes his servant? It does mean what we think. It does mean pleasure. This word is is expressing something of God's pleasure. The word is used of a man taking pleasure in his wife in the law. It's used in other places to describe the desires of someone's heart. Like when Solomon completed the temple and it says, and he did all, he completed all that his heart desired. Same word, pleased. All that he wanted to do. Uh, it, 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 it's used in, the other pro- in other prophets to refer to God's pleasure in faithfulness. How he doesn't take pleasure in the sacrifices, but takes pleasure in faithfulness. So it's the same word. And the structure of the verse kind of highlights and helps us to get at the answer to what is it that God is pleased with. Notice the structure of it. There's four lines, and the first two lines begin with the same words, the pleasure of Yahweh. So in verse 10, it says, the first line, yet the Lord was pleased. And then in verse 10, the English makes you put it later in the verse, but in in the original, it is the Lord's pleasure again. So Yahweh's pleasure, same as the first line, will be accomplished by his hand. So sort of an inclusio, a beginning and an end that has Yahweh's pleasure 
And in the middle are two lines. So the second line says, when you make him a guilt offering. And then the third line, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. So we'll come to those middle lines. But first, just think about the, the overwhelming, clear teaching of this chapter and this verse in particular is that it was Yahweh himself who is the one who is orchestrating the death of Jesus. Yahweh did it. We see very clearly that this verse is telling us God is the one who is acting and he is doing it according to his pleasure. It was Yahweh who ultimately put Jesus to grief though it was through the instrumentation of human actions. So when you read chapter 53 and you see things like he was despised, he was rejected, he was stricken, smitten, afflicted. All of those words are describing what happens to Jesus through people. But this verse is saying it was ultimately the Lord who was causing all of that to happen. Who was it that was striking Jesus? Yahweh. The verb in verse 10 is causal, indicating that God is the ultimate cause of Jesus' grief. When it comes to judging sin, this is what this verse is telling us. God has the power to do so. He has the moral integrity to qualify. He has the fortitude to follow through with it. Now, compare that to the way that we often ignore things, or we overlook sin, or we turn the other way, or, or we have unwillingness just to have a conversation with someone that brings up conflict. <laughs> like We're unwilling to do conflict most of the time. God has the moral fortitude to follow through with his wrath. He will execute judgment. He also has the responsibility for it. In truth, God must judge sin or else there's no justice whatsoever. I find that to be a profound truth. It's actually a profound comforting truth. Every cry for justice finds its destination, its only hope in the fact that there is a just God who will follow through with judgment. Otherwise, there is no such thing as justice. There is no such thing as moral evil unless there is a just, holy God who will follow through with judgment. And what we see in this verse is that the God who made us, the God who operates the world, that God is just. God's character and his nature are at risk of collapse in the failure to execute justice. So it's good news when it says the Lord was pleased to crush his servant. All sin is against God because it is done in his name by by his image bearers, against other image bearers, and against God's expressed desire. Every person on the globe who ever sins at any moment is doing so as an image bearer of God. So every time we do not bring glory to God, we lie about his nature. If we were an angel able to look on on the earth, we would see millions, billions of image bearers 
lying about the nature of God with our very actions and our thoughts. And we are doing that against people who also bear the image of God. Image bearers lying about God, sinning against others, violating his image against image bearers, and all against his word and his desire that he's expressed, both in natural revelation and in special revelation in Scripture. This verse expresses God's desire to punish sin. So without a punishment for sin, all sensibilities of any moral universe crumble and all acts of violence and atrocities of ethical failure come to nothing. Without divine justice, the moral fabric of our existence dissipates. But God is willing and able. He is willing and able. Indeed, the cross of Jesus Christ is a demonstration of the worth and the weight of the glory of God as all sin is a challenge to the moral integrity of the holiness of God. Or as John Piper wrote in his book, Pleasures of God, all of Jesus' work was designed to honor the worth of his Father's glory. Everything Jesus suffered, he suffered for the sake of God's glory. Therefore, all his pain and shame and humiliation and dishonor serve to magnify the Father's glory because they showed how infinitely valuable God's glory is. And such a law, that such a loss should be suffered to demonstrate its worth. Yahweh is the cause and he is willing to execute judgment by crushing his servant. But here's the thing. Jesus was also willing. Jesus was not unwilling, but he was willing. That's what you see in the second and third line when it says, when you make him a guilt offering and you will, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days. Tied into that is the hope of what is happening to him. Jesus offered his soul as a restitution offering. The, the, the offering that's being described in the second line of verse 10 is a guilt offering from Leviticus 5. When someone has sinned and they bring before God an offering to make atonement for their sins and make it right, they offer up an offering so that the, the animal would die, but that they would be forgiven and made right with God again. It's a, it's a guilt offering. I'm guilty. So 53.10 says, when you make him a guilt offering, or your translation might say, when his soul is, becomes a guilt offering. This is Jesus in his priestly work of offering himself up as the sacrifice. Consider Hebrews 9 that says, Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the offering he's describing in verse 10. What is it that compels him to do this? Why would the father crush the son this way? Well, look at the third line. He will see his seed. He will prolong his days. 
Why would the Father put forth the Son? Because of the results that it would produce. Just consider what's in this verse. If you just let let your eyes fall on these verses, I'm going to point a few of them out to you. Chapter 52, verse 15. So the last verse, right before it goes into 53. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what, what had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. He will sprinkle many nations, it says. Look at verse 5 of 53. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And look, we are healed by his wounds. Verse 11, the next verse. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. And verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion Give him the many as a portion. He will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death. Jesus was not unwilling. Remember, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I offer it. I lay it down willingly. Psalm 40, verse 8, which is Jesus speaking, right? It says, I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. He wanted to do what the Father called him to. This is the equivalent of the he, of Hebrews 12:2. For the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was willing. Jesus and the Father were one in his execution. Both willing because of the reward that would come through it. Jesus would carry our iniquities, he would heal our wounds, he would sprinkle many nations, and the mighty would become his spoil. And enshrined or wrapped up in all of this is the assumption that this one would be raised from the dead. Because he doesn't, he's not going to see light if he's dead. And yet he's going to die. He's not going to receive the many as a portion or the mighty as spoil unless he's alive. The whole thing is executed to bring forth all of his saints into his presence because God is not a reluctant savior. He's a willing savior. This is where the pleasure of God and the pleasure of, of the Son are united in redemption. What is it that please God? Well, it's, it's, it's his pleasure that he wanted accomplished. That's what pleases him. So the last line says, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Why is he pleased to strike the sun? Because his pleasure is to save. It is pleasing to the Father to save sinners. Remember I told you this word is found in lots of places. It's also that same word that's found in Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33, where God says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. I take no delight in the death of the wicked. Sure, God delights in public justice. He delights in righteousness. And so in that sense, God delights in in carrying out and upholding justice. But what he says in Ezekiel is that it brings him no delight to execute the wicked. Here, in Isaiah 53.10, it says the opposite. He delights 
to crush the sun. But the reason is because of what it produces. The salvation of you and me. So what does this mean? Well, it means that if you are in Christ, God has delighted in saving you. He's not a reluctant savior. He, he, he wasn't gritting his teeth when, when he called you to himself. When you turned from your sins and believed on him and heard his offer of grace and said, yes, Lord, I will repent from my sin as much as you will enable me to because I want to walk with you and I want to obey the gospel, which says believe in your son, trust only in him and in no deeds that I do, nothing that I bring, completely rest in him. And you responded and God was smiling the whole time. Which means also if you're a Christian and you're struggling, God is still delighted to save you. I mean, are you kidding me? 2,700 years ago, he's going to say this after planning it in eternity past. And there's something you and I are going to do to make God not delight in in his will and what he accomplished in Christ. No, no. So it is a profound truth to know, to believe, and to act on. If God is pleased to save you, he's not disgusted by you. (laughs) He loves you. He loves you. So if you're in Christ tonight, you are someone God is delighted to save. And I think that's something you should treasure. You should meditate on. We should ask the Lord how we should live in light of that. If you're here and you're not in Christ, what you need to know is that that this is the kind of God that is calling you to repentance. Not the God who's bloodthirsty and looking to pounce on your sins. The God who has already pounced on Jesus for your sins, if you will repent and trust in him. That's what you need to know. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this profound truth. And we pray that you would drive it deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.